Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Our guest is Vishal. Now, Vishal, I may need some help. Is Mangalwadi? Did I get it right? Yes, Vishal Mangalwadi, and thank you for having me. <laughs> it's an honor to have you. Uh, you are a prolific author, speaker. You speak everywhere. I mean, around the globe. I don't know how many countries you have been in. In demands the most prestigious conferences and universities, etc. Uh, brilliant scholar. I, I, I want you to start and just give us a quick overview of your life for the first 120 seconds. Then I'm going to jump into sure. a topic. Folks, I'm going to jump into a very relevant topic for all of us. So, Vishal, give us an overview of your of your life. Sure. Uh, I was born in central India in a district called Chhatarpur, where the most erotic temples are. I studied in North India in UP and MP, two different states. Uh, and uh, I studied philosophy. And after that, I, I, at that time, I was studying Hindu gurus. Uh, the most prominent influential Hindu gurus like Hare Krishna and Transcendental Meditation and Rajneesh. And I studied for six months in Labri because I found um, Os Guinness's uh, study of Hindu gurus in his book, The Dust of Death, uh, to explain the best why so many educated uh, Americans and Europeans were turning to Hindu gurus. Uh, so uh, I had read some of Schaefer's books, and so I spent six months uh, in Labrie, Swiss so Labrie. Tell them what Labrie is and how it was founded. Uh, yes. Uh, Dr. and Mrs. Francis Schaefer had established Labrie as a uh, shelter for the generation of hippies who were dropping out of the church, dropping out of home and from Western civilization and who wanted uh, Western civilization to be destroyed. And uh, uh, Labri was a shelter, it was homes that opened up, welcomed these people and gave them freedom and opportunity to question everything and reconsider the Christian faith. So I went, uh, I spent about a year uh, with Hindu gurus the best ashrams, studied their books, talked to their spokespeople, and uh, began to be convinced that Jesus actually is the truth, that he is the true guru. So my first book, The World of Gurus, uh, was published in uh, 1977, and it received tremendous coverage within Indian press. And therefore, it became a textbook on contemporary Hinduism, uh, it's still used as a textbook in many universities, including Cambridge. And um, it's uh, it's because of that that I got the label as a Christian philosopher, uh, because my book on philosophy was being taught at university level. Uh, but then the Lord convinced Ruth and I that uh, if Jesus is true, it's not a matter of intellectual apologetics. Uh, he has to be true to the poor the oppressed, the crushed, the downtrodden in India. So we began to serve the poor. And uh, at that time, it initially we didn't realize that one of the important roots of poverty in India was politics, governance. And so our engagement with poverty led us 
to engagement with governing, government issues. And many of my books, I have 25 books published, and we are now about ready to publish one book a month. And uh, also translating them into many languages in Europe and Asia and, and Latin America. So uh, they are dealing yeah, with one the, book a one book a month. <laughs> You're not writing one book a month, surely? You mean that's being no, no, books that are written in other languages publishing. being translated into other languages? Well, most of these we are. Some of these are out of print, so we are. Uh, making them contemporary and reprinting them. Ah, yes. Uh, but, but the major, but, but some are new books. Like right now I'm writing a little booklet for ARC in London, where you and I will be together. Uh, so uh, as a research paper on uh, recovering optimism and responsibility. So that's what a new referring material. to right there, just folks, I started to break. He's referring, when he said ARC, that's the Alliance of Responsible Citizenship. That's a meeting in London caused, called by uh, European leaders and uh, Jordan Peterson from Canada and others. It's kind of a response to the World Economic Forum is the best way I know to describe it right now. It's a counter to uh, uh, to, to that. If you want, want to say more on ARC, but we'll be together in London in a few days at that particular meeting. Yes. So, so uh, some of the, a lot of the material is new, but much of the material is old. Uh, that I've been researching, writing, lecturing on, and putting it all together. Wonderful, a remarkable, a remarkable life. And and your wife is. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting. We were together in Guadalajara, Mexico, last week. And uh, your wife, I find out, is a faithful listener to the World Prayer Network call. Yes, both of her were. Both of us were regular because we really appreciate the leadership you are giving to the body of Christ, particularly bringing American church out of its uh, non-engagement in the political sphere uh, and bringing back uh, it to, to be responsible for the United States. So I have not been regular, but Ruth has been regular. Um, I suspect so, Ruth will think that tonight's guest is the best of all the guests I've ever had on the World Prayer Network. <laughs> well, I'm doubtful of that. She she <laughs> loves Eric Metaxas, and she loves the number of people you have had. Okay. <laughs> but that being the case, uh, I'm going to throw the question wide open here. We have an outbreak globally of totalitarian authoritarianism. It has been some time since we have seen such massive loss of freedoms. We didn't even have the phrase medical freedom until uh, just recently. That's a new phenomenon, a phrase that I've only heard in the last three years. And it goes to every category, economic, loss of economic freedom. Uh, we're, we're losing freedoms in about every aspect of life in almost every single country of the world right now. So I want you to talk to us about this unbelievably important issue called limited government. And I'm going to ask you to approach the phrase of limited government. And, and folks, before you turn out thinking, oh, it's going to be a political philosophy le lecture. Well, let me, let me tell you, this is going to be biblical and it's going to be grounded in the core of who we are. You wait, wait till, wait till Bishop lands this plane on what you're about to hear. So Bishop, like nobody, anybody else I know, you can, you can do this. What I'm about to call for, I want you to walk me through 
the li- understanding of limited government from a distinctly biblical standpoint and, and, and then help us understand the direct connection between our, our faith in Christ and the nature of limited government. Take it away. Sure. Thank you. Uh, why does why did George Washington not become the king of the USA? Uh, why did he become president? England, Great Britain has a king. Well, so why is Great Britain governed by a prime minister? What do these concepts of president and prime minister mean? Uh, one of the things they mean is the limited government. The, pres- the term president comes from the French Huguenots, Theodore Beza, Philip Mornay, etc. After the horror of St. Bartholomew's Day's massacre in 1572, uh, they, uh, uh, Beza's book, for example, The Rights of Magistrates, was dealing with the question, when the queen orders the magistrates to go and kill some people because their beliefs are different, uh, than the state-approved belief, uh, should the magistrates obey the queen or should they arrest the, ki- the queen for ordering ma- massacre of innocent people? Whose servants are these magistrates? Are they servants of the queen or are they servants of the law? If they are servants of the law, where, did the, where does this law come from? So in the tremendous intellectual ferment that came out of the 1572 massacre of Calvinists, Lutherans had been burned. Uh, the first Lutheran church uh, in Paris had been burnt, but because uh, Calvin was himself a French and was writing in French, his writings had bigger influence in France. So there was the French Calvinist movement, they were called the Huguenots, and they were debating these issues that is the power of the king or the queen limited? Is it limited by law? So they said that the king is first amongst the equals. So a president is one who presides amongst the equals. He does not have unlimited authority. The magistrates, the lower uh, officials uh, are there to check the abuse of power. If it is God who has said you shall not kill, then when the king or the queen orders that innocent people should be killed, they should be arrested and tried uh, by the magistrates because the president he, the president can be impeached as the USA has been doing it, particularly uh, in the last few years, uh, impeaching the president has become a favorite game in Washington, D.C. But the right to impeach the president is rooted in the idea that president is simply an individual who presides amongst equals. He is not a king. He is not the monarch. Now, this was the, the, the development of England were slightly different. The kings began to appoint educated clergymen as ministers to the king, to the, um, um, they are ministers to the king because the uh, one, uh, this is before the Reformation, the uh, only people who were educated 
were those who were trained in Christian monasteries and nunneries. So they were educated. And because they were reading and they were traveling, uh, they had international experience. So they would be ministers to the king. Uh, and a revolution happened in England over a period of time where uh, the kings began to lose their powers. Ministers, the servants began to increase the power. The first minister, the prime minister, became the most important office because this revolution had actually begun in Jerusalem in an upper room 2,000 years ago when the king of kings, the lord of lords, uh, stood up from the dining table, disrobed himself, put on the garments of self, a servant, took a basin of water, started washing the feet of his disciples. And he said that amongst the Gentiles, their rulers lord it over them. They have unlimited power over uh, the people they rule. But the new kingdom that I'm bringing is a kingdom in which whoever wants to be the great must become a minister. Because the son of man did not come to be served, to be ministered, uh, but to minister and to give his life for others. So that revolution that Jesus began in the upper room, where he redefined leadership as servanthood, that was the revolution that created the institution of the prime minister, where the first minister, uh, he has more power, greater executive power than the king. So, but as this framework which created in uh, Europe, German-speaking world, you have chancellor. So actually the prime minister in England also used to be called chancellor. Uh, right now their finance minister, uh, secretary of finance is called the chancellor. But this uh, concept of chancellor, I've discussed these things in one of my book called This Book Changed Everything. Where did these terms, president, prime minister, chancellor, etc., come? So in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, you have chancellors. Uh, but even in America, USA, uh, when uh, uh, George Washington took his oath of office, it was the chancellor in New York who administered the oath because there was no Supreme Court in the USA. So, uh, yes, uh, the uh, fact who did, is... Who did you say administered the oath to George Washington? The chance, chancellor in New York. Uh, it, it was the oath of office uh, was administered by the chancellor. So the institution of chancellor, which I can explain, um, may not be necessary. Uh, but uh, these institutions of president, prime minister, chancellor, which replaced the earlier idea of the king with unlimited power, came from the Bible because the uh, Bible made it very clear that God did not want uh, kings to rule his people. He accepted kingship because he accepts our fallenness and fallen choices until, and he lets us learn through bitter lesson, the very first king in Israel, Saul, began to abuse his power to use the military of Israel to hunt down his own son-in-law who was innocent, who was righteous. This is the abuse of power that you are referring to and against which Samuel had warned uh, the Jews when they began asking for the king. 
so this uh, 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 this is a very brief illustration of the biblical worldview uh, undermined the totalitarian power of the kings, the rulers, the monarchs, to establish governments. And this has many other theological facets, which I'll be glad to discuss. Uh, but uh, at the moment, I've just illustrated that the biblical Christianity in history established governments where the top leader, the executive, president, prime minister, chancellor, had limited power. And all of this was product of biblical worldview. Uh, how about, uh, you refer to the, when the kings of Israel, we have three kings in the unified kingdom and then, and then the rest of the kings, 39 kings and a queen or whatever of the divided kingdom. God did really bless David, King yes. David. There was yes. a profound blessing upon his life. Even though God did not want a king, God chose to bless Israel under King David's leadership in a way like almost another time in history. Yes, yes, uh, you're right. And that itself uh, shows the uh, idea of the limited government, because when David sins, let's say he commits adultery, he kills uh, the husband, he plots the murder of the husband. Uh, Nathan confronts him that you might be the king. But you do not have the right to take someone's wife because it is God's command that you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's God's command that you shall not kill. And his law is binding over the king. And David repents. So that is the office of the uh, prophet, the office of the priest, who uh, who is a check. And, of course, in European history, the Roman Catholic Church um, made a tremendous contribution to the limited government uh, by insisting that Jesus is the head of the church. Therefore, the king, the emperor, cannot be the head of the church. Uh, and so the church uh, and state began to check each other. The problems in Europe came when uh, church and state joined together to do evil. Then there was no force uh, that could resist. And the reformers had to arise as checks. Uh, and uh, uh, particularly if we consider uh, uh, Martin Luther, where this doctrine of the limited government becomes really comes to surface. Uh, his doctrine of conscience uh, becomes very important. We, uh, I'll be glad to talk about it. Yeah, let's go. Let's go further with that. Uh, walk us into uh, Luther and the, the fifteen so, and the reformers, and uh, yes. tie it directly into our Christology, our doctrine of Christ. Yes, uh, his doctrine of conscience is actually building on uh, Christology. Um, and we should go much before um, uh, Luther to uh, both the Orthodox and Roman Catholic tradition, which gave us the creed that Jesus is God become man. So that creed, uh, that truth that Jesus is not a creature who became God, 
because many of the Christian Caesars liked the Arian heresy that Jesus was a creature who became God because this opened the possibility that Caesars could become God and for, uh, for, uh, from um, uh, Augustus Caesars onward, the Caesars were calling themselves God and son of God, etc. Uh, uh, but so that had be, the, the, that was the conflict of persecution in the early church did come from the issue of whether Caesar has totalitarian control or uh, that ultimate ruler is Christ. So um, uh, maybe before coming to Luther, we should clarify that, uh, that the early church, including the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church, uh, which uh, finalized the uh, doctrine of deity of Christ, the full deity of Christ, uh, was uh, uh, formalized in the Church Council of uh, Chalcedon. Chalcedon is a suburb of what is Istanbul now. At that time, it was Constantinople, uh, where uh, they met to discuss the conclusions of the Church Council of Ephesus. The Church Council of Ephesus had affirmed the divinity of Christ, but there were many Caesars and some of their favorite bishops who were uh, questioning, and the Caesars were supporting the Arian heresy that actually uh, Jesus was not God who became man, he was man who became God. Uh, and Caesars liked that. But the uh, uh, peop uh, theologians were gathered to hammer out this issue because it has large implications, particularly for limited government. Uh, once the church unanimously in the Church Council of um, Chalcedon decided that actually Jesus is God from, from all eternity, it, he's God who became man, this means that no man can ever become God. No man can demand absolute control over others. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord means the Caesar's knee has to bow. Caesar's tongue has to confess the Lordship of Christ. So the Lordship of Christ abolishes the Lordship of man. That is the basic uh, point of limited government. That government's power is limited because uh, Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom. He's God who came to establish his kingdom on earth, which Adam and Eve had rebelled against, and by rebelling against God's word, God's authority, they have handed over the authority that human beings had been given to uh, govern this earth, manage this earth. That authority had been uh, given to the devil by human sin. Whoever sins becomes a slave of sin. So Jesus came as the savior from sin. The, 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 what you're saying is so important. I hate to break in, but this no, is no. significant. Rewind about three sentences back. Because Jesus is God, because yes. Jesus is God, we're not. And our authority, yes. our government is limited. Uh, expand that just a little bit more and then continue on. Sure. So, so, so the basic premise is that the lordship of Christ or sovereignty of God abolishes the sovereignty of man. So husband is still the leader in the home. 
but he is not the Lord. His authority is limited. The authority of church leaders is limited because Jesus is the head of the church, not the Pope. So the Lordship of Christ abolishes the Lordship of man uh, and limits all human authority, uh, whether it's authority as parents, authority as husband, authority as Pope, or authority as king. So Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has come to give us the kingdom. And this is what um, Luther, a thousand years after the uh, council, the church council of Chalcedon is fighting for, and we'll come to that in a minute. But uh, the uh, this uh, principle of uh, the lordship of Christ, he is the king of kings, the lord of lords, every knee must bow. This brings in the conflict, the persecution came because the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, was a direct, perceived as a direct challenge to the Roman ideology that Caesar is Lord. And this is what the church councils were resolving. This is how the rule, the concept of rule of law with Justinian code uh, began in 1112. It was, the code was written in the 6th and 5th, 6th century, but after the 11th, 12th century, this principle of rule of law uh, and the, the Europe, uh, both the Catholic and the Protestant Europe, became cultures where was rule of law, not rule of man, not the rule of the rulers. So the point of limited government is that a rule of a ruler is overtaken by the rule of law because the law comes from beyond man. Ruler is not the source of ultimate law. He's bound by God's law. So Ahab and Jezebel cannot covet Nebuchadnezzar's vineyard. They cannot kill Nebuchadnezzar through false witnesses because God has said you shall not bear false witness. They cannot take his vineyard. When they do, Elijah uh, the prophet confronts the king and passes judgment upon the king and the queen and their descendants. So that's the, uh, the, the, the these are the background of the theological issues uh, that because Jesus is Lord, Caesar is a servant to the Lord. He's not the Lord. He cannot be the Lord. His power is limited. So this was the political revolution that biblical theology and the creed of the church of the divinity of Christ brought about in Europe and from Europe it spread everywhere. Although increasingly non-Christian government, including in India, are no longer following uh, the principle of limited government, government's authority limited by God's righteous and just law. So, um, now, this had huge implications for the doctrine of conscience, which set the individual free. So, uh, do you want to continue that yes. discussion? Or should yes. we move to? Uh, yes, no, please continue. This, this, this has implications for clear back in the first century, where Christians were commanded by Rome to take a pinch of incense and put it on the flame and say, Caesar is Lord. And they mm -hmm. refused to do that. Kurios Christos, uh, Jesus is Lord, and they, many of them lost their lives. Yes. And 
that's the epicenter of what you're sharing right now. Uh, correct. And, and that is exactly the question of conscience. That do these martyrs have to save their lives uh, by uh, agreeing to what they're being told? Or should they be true to their conscience and say, no, Jesus is Lord, not just my Lord, but he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And therefore, the political power should be subject to his lordship, his kingship. Um, so, so this was the issue that confronted Martin Luther in 1521 in the Diet of Worms. Worms is a city, Diet is a council, where the emperor asked Luther, are these your books? And he said, yes, your highness. Are these the books written by church fathers? Yes, your highness. I've read some of them. I've taught some of them. Uh, your books contradict what the church fathers have said. Uh, yes, your highness. At some points they do. So you are a heretic. Will you now recant and save your life? Or should we declare you as a heretic? Now, Luther knew perfectly well to be expelled as a heretic means that any Roman Catholic can kill him and killing him would take their soul to heaven. Uh, that, that was a, a Muslim idea that uh, the Roman Catholic Church had accepted at that point by the 16th century. But, so Luther asked for 24 hours to think about uh, how, whether to recant or to refuse to recant. And after uh, a whole day and night in prayer, he makes his famous declaration uh, that I'm not being stubborn. If you persuade me from scriptures and plain reason, I will recant. If you don't, I have to be true to my conscience because it is not right. It is not safe to go against one's conscience. And therefore, I cannot recant. Uh, uh, he's risking his life. What is this business of conscience? Human body, human brain, human heart has no organ, no gland called conscience. You can't find it through any medical examination because it's not a physical thing. Uh, the, the idea of conscience is a part of Christian metaphysics that a human being is made in God's image and being so the part of his spiritual nature, he's a living soul, and part of his spiritual nature is what makes him conscious of moral right and wrong, aesthetics, good and evil, logic, right and wrong, uh, logic, language, aesthetics, morality. These are part of our spirituality, uh, including music. But uh, so this, this, uh, the idea of conscience, of course, is, begins with the Jewish Bible in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin. They, their eyes are open. They begin to see their nakedness. They begin to see that they have done something wrong. They begin to uh, they hide themselves from God, cover themselves with fig leaves. So the conscience is very much there. But the idea fully develops uh, in Paul's epistles, where true religion is... Uh, 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 keeping your conscience pure and clean and loving widows and orphans and aliens, etc. So, th 
this battle that Luther begins at the heart of the Protestant Reformation sets an individual free from the totalitarian control of the government, and it crystallizes in Luther's uh, Marburg lecture in 1528 or so. Marburg is a university city in Germany, and he gives this lecture on two sermon on two kingdoms. He writes it out so anybody can read it, his sermon on two kingdoms. Um, the emperor and the pope, or emperor and the bishop, the church, have some authority over me as an individual. I have to obey. Uh, I have to honor those who are put in authority over me, my parents, uh, or my bosses. But my conscience belongs to Christ. I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. He rules over my heart because Jesus has come in. He's on the throne of my heart. My heart doesn't belong to the emperor. It doesn't belong to the pope, but doesn't belong to the church. Uh, Jesus is my in me. He is my Lord. He is my ruler. So this doctrine of conscience becomes very important. It takes 120 years in 1640s when the Westminster Confession finally brings the biblical doctrine of conscience into Western political philosophy. Uh, so Westminster Confession is a theological document where Oliver Cromwell's government has invited theologians that if Bible is God's word, if Bible is the ultimate authority, what exactly does the Bible teach? So it has many chapters, and one of the chapters, chapter 20, is a chapter on conscience. Now, uh, lots of uh, universities refer to John Locke as the source of modern individual freedom, political freedom. Uh, but they don't realize that Locke quotes uh, Luther's ideas. Every single argument that uh, Locke has for freedom actually comes from Luther, uh, and it, it is institutionalized after uh, it has become part of Western political philosophy only be, uh, after Westminster Confession is um, adopted by British Parliament. Uh, but uh, James Madison, for example, when he is introducing the Bill of Rights in the USA uh, before the assembly, he quotes Luther's sermon on uh, two kingdoms. Uh, so this biblical doctrine of conscience that Jesus is my Lord, I have received him as my savior, as my king, as my Lord. Therefore, the government has no authority over my heart. This sets the individual free, but it sets the individual free not to be selfish, but to have a responsible self-government because Jesus is my Lord doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want to do. It means that I am my conscience is captive to the word of God. I have to do what my king, my savior requires. And if he requires me to sacrifice my life for my neighbor as a good Samaritan, that's what I've got to do. So uh, the uh, Christian idea, idea of, excuse me, individual liberty is very different than what has become of American individualism. 
uh, individualism is Protestant Christianity's great gift to the West and to the world because that individualism uh, made the Western civilization strongest. Uh, but that individualism got corrupted after uh, 1841. 1841 is when Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist, gave a lecture in Masonic Lodge in New York and published it as self-reliance. And until a few decades ago, every high school student in America had to read and study that lecture because it's a brilliant lecture. Uh, but uh, what it is saying is that uh, Emerson goes on to say that one shouldn't go to church because then he will begin to think like his pastors and elders. Uh, you must sit in your own room, meditate to your own inner voice. You must govern yourself. So this was secularization of the Protestant concept of individual, which has created the post-Christian individualism. Christian individualism was that I surrender myself to God so that he might take my body, break it. He might take my blood, shed it for the salvation of the world. Not my will, but thine be done. This was Protestant biblical individualism because Paul is an individualist when he says, I'm dead to the world, the world is dead to me. I don't fall in line with the world. I'm out to change the world. Jesus was an individualist. Uh, uh, and in, in Emerson himself, his models are Moses, Plato, and John Milton. Those are his ideal heroes of uh, individualism. But the American secularism so corrupts the individualism that now it means uh, that I am my own, own Lord King. Uh, if this... Uh, pregnancy is not convenient for me, I kill my own baby. If this marriage is not meeting my interests, I divorce. Uh, I, I don't live for others, I live for myself. So this is uh, a government limited by the corrupt human heart. But the Christian individualism, which was uh, saying that not my will, but thine be done, uh, created great society, great civilization, because it meant individual self-government. But self-government in the biblical sense was Christ ruling over my heart, not me ruling my own uh, decisions and destiny. This is a uh, profound commentary uh, that really is at the epicenter of why we have the World Prayer Network. The World Prayer Network and the ministry Wellverse, which funds it and operates it, as at its core, the biblical principles of governance. And what you've just heard is the epicenter uh, of, of limited government. Uh, you, I don't know how it could be made any clearer than that. I know for some of you, maybe this, uh, this presentation is a little more academic than some, but that's a good thing. And I want to thank our special guest. I got to tell you, uh, Mitchell, this was this was quite profound. It, it really plays at the epicenter of what our founding fathers said when they said, uh, we're given inalienable rights by our creator. And the recognition rights come from God and God alone. 
and then we the people receiving those from God as a gift, we loan them temporarily to individuals we elect. But ultimately, everything is found, all authorities found in God himself. So uh, you have reminded us that in a profound way. Uh, you are a student of the globe. You know geopolitically what is happening. So if we go to a time of prayer, Abishal, I'm going to ask you to lead in prayer first for our the many countries of the world. What are there? 193 countries that are members of the United Nations and a few other countries and territories that aren't. <clears throat> and what we have is the rise of this authoritarianism. Uh, stripping away of people's fundamental individual rights before God. So would you lead in prayer for the condition of our world right now? And that'll kind of launch us in to a time of prayer over this very, very critical issue. Sure. Father, we bow before you. We thank you that as we had become slaves on this earth where we were supposed to be the rulers, you sent the Savior to save us from our sin, to deliver us from slavery and give us the free gift of sonship that we might once again regain our authority to govern because you govern our hearts. You rule. You are on the throne of our hearts. Lord, we see the mess that sin has created in our world, right now, the tremendous pain and suffering and anguish and tears, blood that is flowing in Israel and Gaza Strip. Lord, we realize that the possibility of this trouble expanding because the darkness rules. But we turn to you and we pray for light we pray for light to be given to the leaders of our world, uh, including the United Nations, uh, as they seek to mediate. Lord, we are seeing that the two-nation theory has already failed and uh, failed as a disaster. And we pray that the United Nations and the world leaders will be given the humility to realize that human wisdom is not capable of governing this world, that we need humility, that uh, the in Israel, uh, in greater Israel, Jews and Muslims and Christians and atheists should be able to live together with civility, with justice, with fairness, with love under your Lordship. So, Father, we thank you for what Wellworth has done already to rescue a church that had retreated from the public arena to bring the Christian leadership back to take responsibility for the public arena. We thank you for what you have done over these last several years. And we pray, Father, that as we face the next election, that this movement will grow and will transform the character of the American church and through it, the global church. We pray for your grace. We pray for resources. We pray for power. We pray that your kingdom will come. Your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, thank you, my brother. Before we go on with more prayer, I just want to 
call attention to that in case you joined us late. You've been listening to Vishal Manglawati, and I'm going to spell his name because he's got a lot of books out there you're going to want to check out. Vishal, what is a website they can go to? Uh, my website is revelationmovement.com, and the ministry that we've launched globally is thirdeducationrevolution.com. So revelationmovement.com, which is seeking to reestablish the authority of the Bible over human intelligence, revelationmovement.com. That's at the moment more my personal website. And Third Education Revolution, uh, uh, and we have a few other websites as the Third Education Revolution is growing. Within the USA, virtuescampus.com is the Third Education Revolution uh, specifically uh, ministering to the American churches to take education back from the devil and uh, restore it to the church as a means of teaching truth, cultivating character. So uh, those three uh, <laughs> would be enough for now. Revelationmovement.com, virtuescampus.com, and thirdeducationrevolution.com. But uh, each each uh, of our ministry. Are you saying the word third education? Yes, that's that's a book, Third Education Revolution. Yeah. Uh, but it's a global movement which is seeking to uh, what you're doing in this sphere of governance. We are seeking to do in this sphere of uh, education, and sometimes it'll be very good to talk about that. That uh, how can global body of Christ? take responsibility for discipling nations, educating nations. Um, so a lot of the problems are because beginning with Horace Mann in the middle of the 19th century to John Dewey in the beginning of the 20th century, American church handed over education uh, to the government, which European church had done following Napoleon beginning with 1832. Uh, all the in education which the church had begun to disciple Europe had been handed over to the state. And that's one of the fundamental pro problems which we are seeking to address. So it's called, uh, the website is called Third Education Revolution. The uh, book is called The Third Education Revolution. And uh, one of his key books, by the way, I want to spell his name for you so you can look up and and find more information about him. He's a he's a national treasure to us. Uh, Vishal Mangalati, and it's V I S H A L, and then M A N G A L W A D I. Last name M A N G A L W A D I. And uh, I want you to know that spelling because I want you to be able to look up. Just say a word. I know we got to get to prayer here, but say a word about one. I know you've written many, many books, uh, but what's the book titled? I just started reading it a few days ago. Uh, the the book that made your world and best oh, the, the book that to, say it again. The book that made the world. The, the book that made your world. How yeah. the Bible created the soul of Western civilization. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, Jordan Peterson reviewed it. Uh, in one hour, 47 minutes. Uh, so if you just Google Peterson and Mangalwadi, uh, you will get to that a review of that book. 
And I encourage you to pick up now. It's going to be techy. It's not an easy read, but it's a profound read. I started reading it. I got I got hooked on it. So thank you so much, Vishal. We so appreciate you and the ministry you're having globally. And I'll look forward to being with you in a few days uh, in, in England. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.